I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about Australia's upcoming elections and their role in foreign policy globally, we have with us Dr. Charles Edel, who is our inaugural Australia shareholder at CSIS. Charlie, I'm so glad that we could do this together and and talk about what's going on in your neck of the world. Thanks for being on the podcast. No, I'm thrilled to be here, Andrew. And, you know, the Aussies are exhausted as they near the finish line of their six-week sprint to an election. I bet. I bet. Well, let's get right to it. So how is this election different from previous elections in Australia? Well, you know, it's interesting that for our world at CSIS, foreign policy and national security, you know, we are always so focused on this, but it's one of several and generally not the dominant issue for most democratic elections. But this actually seems to be a case where foreign policy and national security issues have come to the fore in a way that they haven't since any election in almost two decades in Australia. Some have made the argument that you haven't even seen debates like this going back to the 1970s. So... Like all elections, Charlie, the the biggest and most concerning issues for voters are always going to be domestic issues. The big and little issues that they face day to day in their lives usually become the deciding factor. But for ordinary Australians, what are the most pressing issues that they're dealing with right now? Well, it's a combination of issues. You know, first of all, it's hard to cage whether climate change is a domestic or a foreign policy issue because, of course, it's both. Yeah. And climate change and where the government is and whether or not it's out of step with how Australians see it has become a much larger issue. And one actually that voters say that they are willing to vote on in a way that we haven't seen previously. But in addition to climate change, I would say that national security, uh, in particular China and how the Australian government is dealing with China, is an issue that's kind of peaked its way out here. And then, of course, kind of bread and butter cost of living, uh, particularly coming out in rising home prices and affordability has become an issue, too. But none of that really matters, Andrew, because this has become an increasingly American style election where personalities matter more than they had before. So in many ways, This election in Australia has become something of a referendum on the current government and in particular, the current prime minister, Scott Morrison. So let's talk about that for a second. There are foreign policy issues and national security issues that Australia, as one of the U.S.'s closest allies, is right in the middle of. And of course, we have to talk about Ukraine. Scott Morrison seeking a fourth term in these elections. How has he done in the handling of the Ukraine crisis and how will his performance, you know, uniquely influences his chances in this election? Well, you know, in terms of being a trusted foreign policy voice, in terms of the policy decisions that the government has made on the national security front, uh, I don't think there's actually a lot of critique. And in fact, Labour, the opposition party here, has sought to do its very best job to minimize differences with the government. Anthony Albanese, who is a leader of the Australian Labour Party, has said, if there's one criticism I have of the current government, it isn't about any of the substance. And so the argument that we've heard over and over again is this is one of tone and follow-up. Because on the substance of the foreign policy 
debate, when we talk about an increasingly fraught security environment that Australia has to live in, when we talk about the range of economic coercion that's come their way from Beijing, there's actually no space between the government and the opposition, be it on AUKUS, be it on the Quad, be it on making sure that Huawei can't build out their 5G systems. Labor has labored, excuse the pun, if you will, to make sure that there's really not a lot of white space. But the critique has been who's the more competent manager and who's more likely to deliver on these fronts. And who's leading that race right now, in your view? You know, at this point, uh, what's interesting is we're neck and neck. I mean, labor is ahead on the polling. You know, it's fascinating to watch. Having lived in Australia for a while, Australians love to bet on almost everything. So there are weekly polls that come out every week, uh, regardless of whether or not there's an election. And labor has been in front ahead of the government for a year and a half, basically, at this point. There's been some narrowing, there's been some widening, but they still retain their lead. One area where they are uh, way up is kind of negativity on the current PM. He's not seen as particularly well liked, but he knows that, has addressed that and says, you know what you get with me, I'm a bulldozer. The question is about the substance of the policies. A thing that's really interesting in the dynamic here is the last time there was a federal election in Australia was in 2019. And we had the exact same dynamic in many respects, right? That the polls had Labour, who was also in the opposition, ahead for more than a year. And there was no way the government could pull it out. And yet they ended up winning. So that's what the government is clearly banking on in a fast and furious conclusion to this. But the difference here is that in 2019, Labour ran on something many Americans would recognize, a transformational agenda. They were really going to have a broad sweep of policies that were very different on climate, on foreign policy, on a range of other things, and they lost. And so one of the results has been we've seen labor having a very small, much smaller policy agenda this time. I think the policy agenda is we're no different than them on substance. There's some differences, obviously, on climate change, labor having a more ambitious policy, but we're going to be more competent leaders on this front. I want to talk more in depth about China in a minute, but before we do that, I want to ask about Morrison's leadership on COVID and will that have any bearing coming out of this election? You know, I have to say in democratic nations, the world over, everyone's frustrated by where we are with COVID. So in Australia, I mean, we were living in Australia for the first six, eight months of the pandemic, and there's much higher levels of trust in government in Australia than there is in the United States. So pretty early on, uh, the government came out with, uh, you know, what some might hear in the USA were onerous prohibitions, but it really stopped COVID from spreading widely. And the government was seen to have done a very good job under very trying circumstances. But kind of fast forward, I mean, we're now in way past year two. And the delivery rollout was seen as a vaccine slower than it could have been. Once we got into Omicron era, everyone uh, and their mothers got COVID. So there have been kind of pluses and minuses along the way. But I think at this point, people kind of put that aside because we're now kind of beginning to emerge from the COVID period. So you think that Australians are mostly going to vote on, since there isn't a lot of daylight on policy between these two parties, on things that really matter to Australians, you, you think that it's going to come down to like who Australians like better Maybe they want to change. What's your gut on this? It's a little bit challenging because on the one hand, I think that the attack line that Labour has had, that the government is not trusted, 
and not particularly well liked has found support among the Australian public. We've seen that that's been a very effective line. It's actually been so effective that even Scott Morrison says, you're not voting on me for a personality competition. I don't think there's no difference between them. And that's why the government has consistently said, we know national security, the others don't. But I think that, you know, just like in American elections, Andrew, right, it doesn't matter what polling numbers are. You know, the electoral college is what matters. You know, this is a seat by seat fight, and it's actually quite close. So some of the more interesting conversations here are in more of the rural parts of Australia and Queensland, Northern Territories and others. Does a slightly more ambitious climate agenda scare off voters who have uh, a lot of resources to play? And on the other hand, in kind of wealthy urban areas, has the government's lack of movement on climate change push voters to vote for more independence. Uh, they're called kind of the teal party, right? Halfway between blue, that's the color of the liberals. Everything's backwards between America and Australia here and greens. So you can see this actually pushing different parties in different directions. They're nice colors. You know, you got to you got to give them that. They are. But, you know, I have to say constantly liberals are the party of the right in Australia and they wear the color blue. Labor is the party of the left. They wear the color red. Let's just make sure we understand that. Totally understood. Okay, so let's talk about national security and Australia's terrific relationship with the United States. Coming out of this election, if Morrison loses, does the United States lose because we've had such a good relationship or will the continuum continue? Given the fact that Australia is such a close democratic ally, uh, given the fact that there is no real seeming uh, daylight between the two, the United States government isn't going to have a problem working with either the coalition government or labor. And uh, the only difference will be a difference in tone, different personalities, and they're going to take some time to decide where they land exactly on a bunch of different policies on everything from defense procurement to what exactly their rhetoric on China looks like to what they will be doing in the Pacific. And as they do that, you know, this is actually an interesting moment, particularly on the Pacific, regardless of who wins, to have a moment where we rethink both what we are doing individually and how we work together in this region. So what are the key national security issues that Australia faces? China, of course, is the number one thing. But tell me why that's the number one thing and you know what we're really looking at here. China is like the number one thing, the number two thing, and probably the number three thing as well, <laughs> yeah. just because it pervades so much of the national debate over there. You know, we live there from 2017 to late 2020. And you could see the China debate change in such a way so quickly that this is something that moved out of the policy realm into the political realm. And by that, I simply mean, you know, when I was at the pub with my neighbors, uh, pre-COVID times when we could do that, everyone had questions about what China was doing. Because I think the general perception was that uh, Australia has acted first on a lot of things, if we're talking about 5G and Huawei. But also that's precisely because Australia is the first country to experience Chinese coercion as a frontline state. And so we've seen that kind of the economic coercion hammer come down on Australia, increasing visits by the Chinese Navy to their near abroad, the Solomon Islands itself, the increased debate in Australia about what it ought to be doing from a defense capability side, that's AUKUS, right, but also from a moral standpoint and Australia itself just passed Global Magnitsky Acts and has just started using them in Russia, but we can also see it kind of coming down the line for China as well. 
Let's talk about the Solomon Islands. What is the issue there for Australia? If you are an Australian and you are peering out from your country, the Solomon Islands is your defensive link to the rest of the Pacific and, in fact, the rest of the world. And there's a reason why every single government going back multiple decades, labor and liberal alike, say that the single thing that cannot happen is having a hostile power set up in their approaches, right? It courses their trade, it influences the politics of the region, and God forbid anything happens, it has the ability to directly confront the Australians. And in fact, you'll hear rhetoric such as, this is why we talk about the Battle of Guadalcanal, the Battle of the Coral Sea in 1942 and 43, because this is the last time that something happened. Now, if you take a look at the map, Solomon Islands is on a beeline from the northern approaches uh, to Australia, about a thousand miles off its northwest territories. So this is precisely the type of thing that they've been trying to prevent for quite a while. What are they trying to prevent? China encroaching on the Solomon Islands, China setting up a military base there. What is exactly the issue? Well, I think it's all the above, but it's more the former uh, China encroaching on Solomon Islands, giving fuel to building the latter, a military footprint. We've seen over the last couple of weeks this framework agreement leak out of the Solomon Islands. I say leak because it was the opposition in the Solomon Islands that kind of gave this to the media. And when the Solomon Islands government has been asked if this is actually the security deal, they won't tell us. Uh, they say we can't tell you because Beijing won't allow us to, which is clearly uh, upsetting in and of itself. But there are two provisions in that security framework which I think are concerning. One is... On the request of the Solomon Islands government, if there's any political instability, of which there has been much in the Solomon Islands, the Chinese can come in and help suppress that. Now, if you are political opposition in Solomon Islands, that looks an awful lot like a pretext to suppress political opposition, particularly with an election coming up next year, particularly after Prime Minister Sogavari of the Solomon Islands has already made calls about pushing off and delaying that election. Troubling. The second part, though, from a strategic perspective, is there's a provision in there that the Chinese, upon request of Solomon Islands, can have a logistical replenishment facility in the Solomon Islands for their ships. Now, that sounds an awful lot like naval base by another name. And that is a, a, the concern of the Australians, that it will impede what it is that they have the ability to do, will increase the intelligence collection against them, and again, if anything ever goes hot, we'll stop the United States from being able to flow forces into the region. This is kind of like the Chinese setting up all kinds of naval bases in the South China Sea, isn't it? It's exactly like this. But what is different is that that was in the South China Sea. And now what we're beginning to see is an expansion of that strategy elsewhere around the globe. You know, the Pacific Islanders themselves have said, we do not welcome being thrust into the middle of a geopolitical competition. And Solomon Islands conversation, for those of us who pay attention to it, is often narrowly focused on Solomon Islands. But we know that the Chinese are pushing to have multiple military footprints in the Pacific Islands, in Vanuatu, in Kiribati, in Papua New Guinea. And if these come online, and we know that the Chinese are nothing if not opportunistic in how they pursue this, all of a sudden the South Pacific itself begins to look a lot more like the South China Sea, increasingly militarized, increasingly contested. And Australia won't have that, I'm assuming. Well, Australia does not want to have that. And so therefore, there's a call about what else and what further they can do. But of course, there are multiple players in this game. 
What can Australia do? You know, there is talk already of obviously increasing focus, attention, resources. And, you know, one thing that we should say already is that this has been an increasing focus area for the government. They, under Scott Morrison, uh, inaugurated their Pacific step up, more time, more resources to the Pacific, more outreach to them. That's a good start. It's obviously not delivered on every front, as we can see with the Solomon Islands. But, you know, one of the angles of critique that we've seen, labor government has kind of cobbled together a lot of existing proposals out there and said this is the beginning of something new, which includes even more presence, even more training with Pacific Island leaders, more aid budget. One of the things that happened is that several years ago, the Australian government pulled out for culture war reasons its support of broadcast into the Pacific Islands, and the Chinese bought up that bandwidth and started broadcasting their propaganda. So that's yet another space where they could go to. So if China succeeds in eventually creating a, some sort of a military base in the, in the Solomon Islands, what does this do to Australia and that part of the world? Does it make that part of the world increasingly militarized? I mean, it does by definition because China would have a base there. But, you know, on the Australian side, they've you've mentioned AUKUS a couple times. Australia now has a nuclear submarine deal with the United States and Great Britain. And it looks probably to China like Australia is trying to contain them. Well, you know, almost anything looks to China like the rest is trying to contain them. So, you know, this is similar to some of the arguments that you hear that we should be careful about AUKUS because it would inaugurate an arms race in Asia, right? That's one of the lines you hear sometimes around Southeast Asia, certainly out of Beijing. And of course, the truth of the matter uh, is that there is an arms race in Asia, but it's been a one-sided arms race over the past two decades that China has single-mindedly been pursuing an arms buildup and a military modernization. What AUKUS is, is I think fundamentally it's a bet that with increased capabilities for willing and able partners, you can begin to tilt that balance of power back to an area where you get to stasis and where China no longer sees itself as operating in a permissive environment. That's the logic behind AUKUS. And I think that is the hope, at least, of what will happen when these submarines come online. I would say, though, that, you know, where submarines are kind of off the table, uh, Labor says that they support AUKUS. But one of the issues that I think is really going to come up for the next government, whoever forms it, is nuclear powered submarines or any submarines are great, but they're also a long way off. And there's, you know, a 15 year build period between that. And the question becomes, because that balance of power is tilted so much over the last couple of years, what else can be brought online more quickly that doesn't take 15 years to build to make sure that China understands it's no longer operating in a permissive environment? Now, the Biden administration has quite a few adroit China hands, Australia hands. When they look at this calculation, what do they see and, and what do they need to do in your view? Yeah, I mean, are you asking specifically about AUKUS or kind of more broadly about the alliance, Andrew? I'm asking more broadly about the U.S.-Australia alliance and what it means vis-a-vis -vis China and what the Biden administration should do, given the set of facts that we have right now. Yeah, I think one of the things that the Biden administration has understood is that the U.S.-Australia alliance, because there are both willing and capable partners, can be set on turbocharge. And that means moving into a lot of different areas to both kind of help on the positive side of things. That's really the quad narrative that we see. 
that it's not only China that can offer goodies to the region, right? But India, Japan, Australia, and the United States together can come together and offer a whole bunch of public goods that are desired by and useful to the region. But it shouldn't be lost on anyone that those same four nations are maritime democracies who are quite capable with their militaries and are also going to provide some ballast, some pushback to China. And there is almost no partner that is more uniquely well-situated to kind of move out with the United States on the defense and security side of things, given not only that we are such close allies, that we share intelligence so closely, that we are really interoperable in our own system. So I think, you know, to come back to your question, Andrew, we're going to begin to see you know, further changes in what the alliance looks like, who does what, who is where. If nothing else, we should probably expect to see greater U.S. presence in Australia pretty soon. We have also seen not only on the submarines, but the Aussies are calling for having much greater capabilities of their own, including strike capabilities, missiles, right, uh, which they can either use themselves or load onto American platforms, too. So we're going to see this relationship evolving in a lot of different ways, I think. So the U.S.-Australian relationship is really important. And we've known that, of course, which is why we have you as our Australia chair. Do you think Americans understand how important this alliance is? I mean, they certainly do from Iraq and Afghanistan and Australia having our back always. But do you think the American public is going to continue to gain consciousness into this arena of national security? Well, that's the job of the Australian chair to help with that education. That's Andrew. why we brought you here, Charlie. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny that Australia has such like a positive image, is generally seen so positively, is not a partisan issue at all in American politics, is broadly popular that, yes, in general, but understanding just how far Australia has moved in how it views its own security, how it wants to contribute as a partner, and how... In the midst of these changes, I mean, this is what's quite interesting, I think, is that Australia said, yeah, things are bad. Here's what we're going to do about it, which is different than some of America's other allies and partners in terms of what they have put on the table. So I think this is a story that's really worth telling. And I think it's one that is going to increase. But I'd also say, Andrew, on the flip side, it's funny, when we were in Australia, I sometimes get that question in reverse saying like, ah, you know, we're just such a small country. You guys probably don't care about us that much. And I'd say, you know, look, there's no rank ordering of U.S. allies. But if I did have access to the secret list, it's very clear that over the last six months with AUKUS, but even over the last two years, Australia's really moved up the pecking order. It's not just all koala bears and surfing anymore. Well, it's that too. And these other things. <laughs> Charlie Edel, thank you so much. This is a great conversation, and one I know that we're going to continue to have about Australia, the U.S., China, and foreign policy and national security going forward. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Andrew. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 